close your eyes and open your imagination as we enter the magical kingdom of Sodium. A kingdom where the charges balance and ionic bonds abound. A kingdom filled with wonder and hey, mystery. Hey, hey, Jer. A kingdom of osmosis and other fun molecular forces that rule the world. Molecular forces? A kingdom. Jer. Where- Can we just talk about hyponatremia already? I was just getting to the good part about truth and understanding and all the good, beautiful things. Pretty sure everyone just came here for the hyponatremia, not the Jeremy voices. Whatever. So I want to start with the case, and I've intentionally not told either of you what this case is. We have this patient who rolls in with diabetic ketoacidosis. He is in his young 20s, chilling in the ICU. He goes through the typical DKA protocol, and his sodium was pretty low on presentation. It was 105. We did a corrected sodium equation on him, and his corrected sodium was 120. And after his DKA resolved and his blood sugar normalized, his hyponatremia got worse. His sodium went back down to 105. Now, mind you, this patient is clinically well-appearing, Looks okay. He's got no complaints. He's eating. He's chilling, doing whatever. But he's stuck here in the intensive care unit because nobody will accept him with his sodium so low. And so everyone's looking at this patient, scratching their heads, wondering what they should do. And we consult nephrology. Now, nephrology and the intensive care unit docs are talking about administering hypertonic saline to this patient. We haven't done it. We haven't decided to do it. But what are your initial thoughts? Anything from either of you? He's fully resuscitated from DK, correct? Gap is closed. He got Completely his fluids. Completely resolved. All the things. Just the, literally the only problem is his sodium is low, 105. Okay. So is this a patient who off the bat you'd administer hypertonic saline to? I mean, that's a pretty low sodium. Normal is 135. His is 105. We've uh, talked a whole lot, but hadn't said anything about what this patient looks like. So I would like a patient assessment. So his physical exam is normal. He's awake, alert, oriented. He has no neurologic deficits, and he's fully conversational. Do I have any indication of what his volume status is? He is euvolemic. Where my next thought process was, so is he hypovolemic, euvolemic, or hypervolemic? When he came in, he probably was hypovolemic, but now... Is it euvolemic after resuscitation? So we'll leave the mystery for you guys here, and we're going to dive into hyponatremia throughout this episode. Now, I want to let you know that this patient ended up staying in the ICU for about another day and a half. The answer will astound you. Back at 10 after commercial. So before we talk about all the juicy stuff, we have to cover some basic science concepts. And this is technically not physiology. It's more of a chemistry kind of thing. We're going to dive into the simple stuff and move toward more difficult. And some of these may seem kind of arcane or irrelevant, but please bear with us. I promise you that understanding some of these concepts will make learning hyponatremia so much easier. So the first concept we'll go over is diffusion. This one is easy. It is the passive movement of a substance down its concentration gradient. In other words, a substance will move from an area of high concentration of said substance to an area of low concentration to that substance. I always think of adding food coloring to a glass of water. You know, you put a little dot in there and it starts as this big ball of blue, say, in the middle of the glass. If you watch it, it kind of moves around and eventually turns the whole glass blue. And so the idea, of course, is that food coloring is diffusing throughout the water from an area of high concentration in that big ball to an area of low concentration throughout the entire glass. 
The next concept is osmosis, and if you understand diffusion, this one isn't very difficult. Osmosis is the diffusion of water from one area to another. Just like every other substance, water moves down its concentration gradient. From an area of high concentration of water to an area of low concentration of water? Yes, but we have to think about it a little differently here. In the case of osmosis, we have to think about solutes, that is, dissolved particles. A solution that has a ton of solute, by definition, has a lower concentration of water. So let's imagine that we had two containers. They were separated by this semi-permeable membrane. You remember from biology, right? In one container, we have pure water, and in the other container, we have salt water. If that membrane was permeable to water, the water would want to move from the pure water container and into the salt water container. Bingo. Because the salt water container has a higher concentration of solute, and because it has a higher concentration of solute, by definition, it has a lower concentration of water. Water is moving down its concentration gradient, and that's osmosis. Let's move on to osmolality and osmolarity. Both of these focus on the osmotic concentration of a solution. In other words, how many dissolved solute particles do I have? And this is really all you need to know. For the sake of defining these, osmolarity is the number of solute particles per liter of solution, while osmolality is the number of solute particles per kilogram of solution. Clinically, we often use osmolality. And we've saved the most difficult concept for last, and that's tonicity. Tonicity, it's very loosely related to osmolality and osmolarity with one minor difference. Tonicity specifically refers to how the osmotic concentration of a solution, or in the case of the human body, interstitial fluid, can affect cell volume. And we essentially have three possibilities here. We have hypotonic, isotonic, and hypertonic. A solution that is hypotonic has less solute than your average cell has. An isotonic solution has the same amount of solute. And a hypertonic solution has more solute than your average cell. Hitting on the concept of osmosis we talked about earlier, if you place a cell in a hypotonic solution, it will swell up like a balloon. If you put a cell in an isotonic solution... Nothing will happen. And last, if you put a cell in a hypertonic solution, it'll shrink like a little raisin. A normal sodium value is somewhere in the neighborhood of 135 to 145 milliequivalents per liter. Above this range is obviously hypernatremia, which we're not talking about in this episode. Maybe another one if you want it, let us know. And below this, of course, is hyponatremia. Sodium is a major extracellular cation. And of course, its counterpart, chloride, is a major extracellular anion. I want to double down on what Rachel said. Sodium is the major solute in the body. And by extension, plasma sodium and plasma osmolality typically go hand in hand. So what this means is that if your plasma sodium is low, your plasma osmolality is also going to be low. And of course, if your plasma sodium is high, your plasma osmolality should also be high. Clinically, this is really important. We can measure osmolality to figure out if that low sodium value we're seeing is actually real. Whoa, spoiler alert. This science has literally been around for centuries. There's like a max one-year limit on spoiler alert. Did you guys hear what happens in The Joker? Be quiet, (laughs) Jeremy. What the heck? (laughs) That one is still an actual spoiler alert. Let's move on to our approach to patients presenting with hyponatremia. In my mind, there are five things you should do every time that a sodium comes back low. Can we just go through those five things really quick before we start? Yeah, sure. First, assess your patient. Next, repeat the lab. Wait, wait. You should repeat the sodium every time? I think so, personally. And of course, sometimes you might... What if they just got it? I'm repeating it. 
Yeah. So wasteful. I'm not pulling the trigger on treating a low sodium. If I know if I'm you're talking tr- about like giving hy- like hypertonic saline. If I'm talking I about agree. giving hypertonic saline, yeah. And especially like What about if you're just like gonna check some urinosms and stuff? So fair. If uh if that sodium comes back and it's like one thirty, probably not gonna recheck it. But if it's low low, and especially if it's newly low low, low low low. I hate that low low. I'm going to repeat. You say it. I'm going to repeat the lab. Low. I'm repeating it. I don't care. After this, you're going to order a plasma osmolality and your urine studies, specifically urine osmolality and urine sodium. And last, you're going to perform a volume status assessment. Okay, no spoilers here. Let's get some repetition and go through each of these one by one. From the top, assess your patient. So that one sounds obvious, but the old adage, treat the patient and not the number, is definitely going to be your friend here. Assessing your patient is going to help you decide whether we need to be aggressive or if we need to take our sweet time. I think the most important thing here is that a patient who will need emergent sodium correction will look like they need emergent sodium correction. In my mind, looking for things like coma, seizures, shy of these, there's really no need to get aggressive on your sodium correction. Treat the patient, not the number. Exactly. To that end, while you're taking a look at your patient, go ahead and send another sodium level down to the lab. You never know if that sample was diluted or drawn from a line with fluids running through it. I've seen people come through guns ablazing to treat a serum sodium of 110, but it turns out that sodium was drawn from an IV that was running a solution of D5. When we redrew on a fresh peripheral stick, the repeat was perfectly normal. So just send a repeat down, especially if the clinical picture doesn't necessarily fit. The next thing you want to do is order a plasma osmolality. And ladies and gentlemen, just to be clear, this is a separate standalone lab test that you have to order. There are calculated plasma osmolalities that come on your lab panel or you can calculate it yourself from your sodium and glucose and all that stuff. This is not that. This is an actual measured value. For the listeners out there... Do you have any guesses as to why we order a plasma osmolality? Could it be because true hyponatremia should present with a low plasma osmolality? Bingo. Remember, in patients who have true hyponatremia, plasma osmolality is going to be low. If your plasma osmolality comes back and it's normal, we call this pseudo-hyponatremia. In that, we should look for things like hyperproteinemia and hyperlipidemia that cause a lab artifact and an artificially low sodium. If your plasma osmolality comes back and it's high, we call this fictitious hyponatremia. Now, both pseudo-hyponatremia and fictitious hyponatremia are saying the same thing. It's not real. Fictitious hyponatremia with a high osmolality is typically caused by some other solute that's concentrating in the bloodstream. Think of things like hyperglycemia, or even mannitol that will give sometimes for patients who have cerebral edema. But the sodium you're seeing, it's not real. The take-home point is that if your plasma osmolality is normal or high, the hyponatremia that you are seeing in your labs is not real. So now that we've assessed our patient, repeated the lab, and ordered plasma osmolality, the next step is to take a look at our urine studies. First, a urine osmolality, and second, a urine sodium. Urine osmolality is an interesting one. Urine osmolality helps us to differentiate ADH, that is anti-diuretic hormone, ADH-independent hyponatremias from ADH-dependent hyponatremias. Sounds like there's a physiology lesson coming. You know me so well. So remember that anti-diuretic hormone does exactly what its namesake says that it does, anti-diuresis. This is the patient that takes water that was destined for the urine out of the nephron and puts it into the sodium so that you do not diurese. 
If we say this differently, antidiuretic hormone, it makes urine more concentrated, less watery, but it makes plasma or blood more watery or more dilute. ADH-independent hyponatremias present with dilute urine or urine with a low osmolality. These patients are usually hyponatremic because they are either drinking too much water, not eating enough solute, or both. Some common causes of ADH-independent hyponatremias include tea and toast, basically an old lady eating a slice of toast and drinking a bunch of tea, nothing else, beer potomania, and psychogenic polydipsia. I love the concept of tea and toast hyponatremia. It sounds so prim and proper. It's a fun word. My sodium is low. <laughs> ADH-dependent hyponatremias, on the other hand, present with very concentrated urine. This is urine with a high osmolality. These patients are always hyponatremic because of a relatively unsuppressed release of antidiuretic hormone. So, said differently, serum is becoming more dilute when it should really be becoming more concentrated. There are many more causes of ADH-dependent hyponatremias. In order to differentiate between them all, we have to evaluate our patient's volume status. This is differentiating between hypervolemic or volume overloaded, euvolemic or hypovolemic our volume down. So I want to highlight for all my ICU people out there who are reaching into their back pocket, getting their talking points out for their Swan-Gans catheter or their flow track or their POCUS. We're not necessarily saying that we need to perform an aggressive or overly complicated volume status assessment of our patient. Yeah. So put away your CVP, your SVV, your IVC, your EPSS, and all the other acronyms that you would normally use for these people. So not that those things aren't useful, but in the case of hyponatremia, we recommend you use the history and physical exam to guide you. We're not talking about subtle cases of volume responsiveness here. We're looking for obvious signs. So for hypovolemia, look for things like a history of vomiting, diarrhea, or overdiuresis, like too much Lasix prescribed to a patient. Or for hypervolemia, think of a patient who has long-standing heart failure, etc., with gross edema. And for euvolemia, that's kind of everything in between that. Again, feel free to do your complicated volume assessment, but for the sake of nailing the etiology of hyponatremia, it's probably unnecessary. Some common causes of hypovolemic hyponatremia include GI losses, such as through vomiting or diarrhea, renal losses through polyuria or diuresis, or other losses like burns. Common causes of hypervolemic hyponatremia include heart failure, liver failure, or nephrotic syndrome. And finally, common causes of euvolemic hyponatremia include hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, and syndrome of inappropriate ADH or SIADH. Now, I don't think it's as important for you to memorize each of these causes as it is for you to memorize the approach. If you can really nail down these five steps that we discussed here, there will be very few cases of hyponatremia that will truly trip you up. And those five steps are 1. Assess patient 2. Repeat the lab 3. Check the plasma osmolality 4. Check urine studies, such as urine osmolality and urine sodium and 5. Check the patient's volume status We'll include a flow sheet with all of our causes in our show notes. Now, if you've only been halfway listening for most of the episode, now is the time for you to tune in and listen up. So put down your phone, log off of Instagram, and listen. Are you listening? Listen up. Are you really sure you're listening? This is literally the most important point. Don't try to be a hero. There's only one way that you can mess up hyponatremia, and that is correcting it too quickly. Do you remember our discussion on tonicity and osmosis? Remember that in a hypotonic solution, a cell will swell. In true hyponatremia, 
the interstitial fluid becomes quite hypotonic. This means that in response to hyponatremia, our body cells, including our brain cells, will swell a little bit. But that's okay. This is all normal homeostasis kind of stuff. If we come around and try to rapidly overcorrect the sodium, we're going to undermine all of this normal homeostasis kind of stuff that the body put in place. And specifically, Correcting hyponatremia too fast is going to take all of those brain cells that are currently kind of swollen, and it's going to make them pretty shrunk. Turns out the brain, specifically the myelin in the brain, doesn't really like going from swollen to shrunk. Overcorrecting hyponatremia damages brain myelin and causes a condition called osmotic demyelination syndrome, formerly called central pontine myelinolysis. This causes permanent neurological damage. So we're going with ODS these days, right? ODS. Sounds like a rapper. So again, if you haven't listened to anything that we've said so far, do not overcorrect hyponatremia. Okay, so how fast is too fast then? So technically you shouldn't exceed 10 to 12 milliequivalents in 24 hours, but aiming this high is probably still pretty dangerous. Most experts agree that about 8 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period is a good target. So if your patient has a sodium of 120, you probably only want to get it to 128 in the first 24-hour period. So we've talked about what not to do, but I want to put together a solid treatment plan and talk about what we should be doing for these patients. Remember, the first thing we do is assess our patient. If they need emergent correction, as in they are comatose or seizing, we need to give a bolus of hypertonic saline. Generally, your goal for these patients should be to raise the sodium by 5 mil equivalents immediately, and then by a total of 8 to 10 mil equivalents in the first 24 hours. Hypertonic saline is administered in 50 to 100 milliliter aliquots, and at our institution, it's under lock and key. And, uh, you know, we got to get nephrology involved. Patients got to come to the ICU. We got to get frequent labs and all that stuff. One of the controversial things that we talk about all the time is whether or not hypertonic saline needs to be administered through a central line. Uh, John, Rachel, do you guys have opinions on this? And I'll share mine too. I've been in a lot of situations where by the time the central line is in, the hypertonic saline is actually finished. That is a great point. So I think it depends on how long you're getting hypertonic saline or you suspect the patient will be receiving it. Um, and also uh, what kind of access they already have. If they have a little wimpy 22 gauge in their hand, it's different than having a solid 18 gauge in their AC. I agree with everything you said. Add one more point. Does every patient that's getting hypertonic saline need to be in the ICU? I suppose that's also institutional preference. Some of our facilities have an intermediate care unit. And for us, just from a protocol standpoint, not from an evidence-based standpoint, we have a sodium cutoff. So anything less than 110 is automatically coming to the ICU, no questions asked. But no, I, I suppose you don't necessarily need to be in the intensive care unit to receive hypertonic saline. Again, agree, but I think I would say in general... A rough rule of thumb is most of these patients should be in the ICU, mostly due to exactly what we're talking about, the fear of the reality of overcorrection. I think all three of us have seen happen in a non-ICU setting where you can't get your labs drawn as quickly. and Maybe your lab isn't responding to your stat BMP as quickly. Having them in the ICU just makes me feel so much more comfortable that someone's following up in those sodiums, someone's drawing them, and that the lab is actually turning around in a reasonable amount of time. Right. One of the most interesting logistical things that I recently encountered with this exact situation, a patient who had severe hyponatremia and was on the floor, is that uh, it was a lesson for me to really be following up on my patient's labs. I, I happened to follow up on my own at this time. And we noticed that the sodium came in very low. And in less than 24 hours, it actually was normal. 
when we kind of did a, a post hoc analysis, there was no phone call to the provider when that lab came back about a critical lab value. Why? It wasn't critical. It was normal. You know, from a lab standpoint, that lab value was not read as a critical lab value. So number one, follow up your patient's labs. And number two, please make sure you're communicating with your team like, hey, a sodium of 130 is a critical lab on this patient. When it comes to following up on labs very closely, especially in a hospital where you are having difficulty getting labs on time, what I will do on my sign-out sheet, and I'll provide an example of this in the show notes, I'll put a blank space to insert a number, and then I'll put an arrow And I basically, if the lab is Q6, and let's say I'm on from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., I will put three blank spaces with three arrows. And underneath the blank spaces, I will put a time. And so when a sodium pops up, I'm able to put the sodium value there. And so let's say at 6 p.m., the sodium is 125. Um, And then at 12, I see on my list that I need to follow up another sodium. And once it comes back, I actually put the number there as well. So I could see how fast it rose throughout the night. And I can make sure to follow up on it. I just love the foresight there, being able to put the three blanks so you know you've got three sodiums to follow up on. It is so easy to get busy on shift. And sodium can fall way down your list when someone's you know crashing and burning in front of you. But it shouldn't. This is as dangerous as anything else we're doing in the ICU. Yeah, I, uh, I'm far less organized than Rachel. But I do set little reminders on my phone just with very simple, like, you know, check sodium in three hours and I can use my Hey Siri function. So it makes me feel like I'm in the future. But either literally my iPad just uh, turned on, <laughs> responded to my my calling of her. But uh, yeah, you have to follow these labs up on your own. I like that method, Rachel. It's good. Speaking to the central line piece, though. So I've done some research on this. Extravasation is not going to cause skin necrosis like it would with a vasopressor, so to speak. The only real reason that you should be doing a central line for hypertonic saline, it is profoundly painful. So it's more the pain than it is the extravasation? It's, it's pain for a good bit of time. It's not like, oh, ouch, that hurt. It's like it, it hurts a couple hours we debate this literally every time we put a patient on hypertonic every time we probably just need to streamline yes so keep in mind that each 100 mls of hypertonic saline will raise your serum sodium somewhere in the neighborhood of two to five meqs per liter this is all dependent on renal function if y'all are in an institution that does not have hypertonic saline readily available, you can use an amp of sodium bicarbonate. You can throw back to our bicarbonate episode that we did. But just to be clear, this is a super off-label use for bicarbonate. So make sure that you discuss with your local nephrology and pharmacy team to kind of discuss how you would do that. How frequently should we be ordering BMPs? I typically try to order mine every two hours. Now that may be excessive, but you don't want to miss an overcorrection. Make sure you talk to your team about what lab values to call for. To reiterate Jeremy's point, make sure you talk to your team about what lab values to call for. If your sodium is 130, you may not get a call because it doesn't look abnormal. So, emergent patients need emergent correction, but non-emergent patients really don't. Have I mentioned we should treat the patient and not the number? Yes. Yes. Okay. Sheesh. For these patients, once you've determined the cause by ordering your urine osmolality, your urine sodium, and performing your volume assessment, the solution is really to treat the underlying cause. Sorry that's not super exciting, but most of these causes of hyponatremia will fix themselves once you treat the underlying cause or stop the offending agent. So take a look at our show notes. We have all of the details included there, but some examples will include 
If your patient has hyponatremia from hypothyroidism, give them thyroxine. If the etiology is adrenal insufficiency, they need steroids. Consider isotonic crystalloid for GI losses. And if your patient has a volume overloaded state like heart failure or liver failure, you're going to need to consider volume removal. Now, there is some data on these vasopressin receptor antagonists. They're pretty niche, not often prescribed medications like Tolvaptan, and we'll include details about that in the show notes as well. So we'll also include some information on SIDH, syndrome of inappropriate ADH in the show notes. This could be an episode all of its own. Maybe a future episode? I don't know. Maybe. So let's say you decided not to listen to us and you either treated the number instead of the patient or you corrected your sodium too fast. What should you do next? Put down the hypertonic saline and nobody gets hurt. Stop giving hypertonic saline and I would probably honestly stop all isotonic fluids that the patient is getting. I would start a hypotonic fluid, something like D5 water. The recommendation is about 5 cc's per kg over one hour and then recheck that lab. Next, it's time to get clever with a DDAVP clamp. DDAVP, or arginine vasopressin, is exogenous ADH. Remember that ADH, antidiuretic hormone, makes urine more concentrated, and it makes plasma more dilute. It kind of makes it the perfect agent to give if we accidentally made our plasma too concentrated. Exactly. The dosing is 1 to 2 micrograms IV, and it could also be given subcutaneously. DDAVP is nice because hypertonic saline can temporarily inhibit endogenous ADH secretion. Giving DDAVP essentially clamps our serum sodium from rising too quickly by diluting the blood with water that's reabsorbed out of the urine. Some people out there even advocate for performing this DDAVP clamp from the get-go. And the reason being, DDAVP makes it really, really difficult to raise your serum sodium too fast, even if you accidentally give a little bit too much hypertonic saline. It essentially makes it so that you reabsorb more water than you administer salt. Kind of keeps everything a little bit balanced. We'll include an article on the DDAVP clamp in the show notes. So that about wraps up our discussion on hyponatremia. Rachel, John, let's hit them with a few take-home points. Remember, osmosis is the movement of water, while tonicity is the ability of a solution or the blood to affect cell volume. Patients with true hyponatremia have hypotonic interstitial fluid. In response to this, their cells, including their brain cells, will swell. Overcorrection of hyponatremia will cause brain cells to shrink, potentially resulting in a condition called osmotic demyelination syndrome, or ODS. Aim for less than 8 mil equivalents of correction in 24 hours to be safe. Remember the five steps of working up a patient with hyponatremia? Assess the patient, repeat your lab, check a plasma osmolality, order it, don't just math it out, urine studies such as urine osmolality and urine sodium, and check your volume status. For patients who present with coma or seizure, i.e. an emergency, you can correct their serum sodium emergently. Go ahead and give them hypertonic saline, but please be careful not to overcorrect. Remember your goal is about 5 milliequivalents immediately, and then you can go ahead and aim for 8 to 10 milliequivalents in total over the next 24 hours. Check out our show notes for methods of treating less emergent cases. And finally, if you mess up, don't forget your hypotonic fluid or your DDAVP clamp. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And don't overcorrect your patient's sodium.